Do, I ha- do we have any announcements? I don't think we have any announcements. <laughs> That's an announcement in itself. I'd like to announce two things, which is I found my reading glasses and I bought a new watch. For those of you who were here last week, I was without reading glasses and my watch was in the washing machine. Um, So we are better off already, aren't we? (laughs) Yeah, we are better off already. Um, So I'm going to bring Irene up if we're all settled and we're all good. Are you ready? (laughs) Uh, And the wonderful thing about Irene's story, like I said, only one part um, is how things were. Two parts of her story is what Jesus did and how things are now. Um, And that's the story we like to tell. Thank you. I was born in Hobart during the war into an affluent Christian family. And as a baby, I was baptised. But from the moment I was conceived, I wasn't wanted. At 18 months old, I was in hospital dying of malnutrition because nobody could get me to eat. My auntie told me this when I'd grown up a bit. And um, so I, in my, all my young life, I was verbally, sexually and physically abused. When I was about 12, my father sent me to a convent boarding school to help me to be a lady and to have a good education. But I thought he'd sent me away because he didn't want me. During the September holidays of that year, I went home and my mother, who was pregnant, and I didn't know about that, she had to go to hospital because the baby was a premature one. and. That was in the Ewes Hospital in the Central Plateau. And my father and his friend took me in the car to visit my mother. When they come out there, they went into the hotel and of course they had to wet the baby's head who did survive, my youngest brother. And they kept on going into the hotels, there was only another couple, but they went in and, and continued to be drinking. And that neither of them were in a fit state to drive, really. But I was in there with them, and we went through Taralea down the hill towards the power station, and my father turned into the power station. I got out of the car to stretch my legs. That night, I was brutally raped and thought I was going to die. It's okay. It's okay. I'll be fine. To get back home, I had to get in the car because we still had a way to go to Bronte Park. And when we got home, they went into the kitchen to get something to eat. And of course, I ran a hot bath, nearly scolding myself, trying to get clean. But I had to pack my case because I was going to be put on the bus the next day and sent back to school. Nobody knew. And my father didn't even notice me. At school, 
And in my growing up years, I'd never had a birthday, never a birthday cake. It was a lost childhood, really, but all I longed for, for was for a mother who loved me. I buried my severe, all my emotions for survival because we're always told that good girls don't cry, that good girls don't get angry, and good girls don't cry. Uh, you know, all the negative stuff, you wouldn't amount to much, you were no good, all the stuff. But I internalised all of that stuff. And so I blocked out heaps of stuff. One way that I escaped is the fact that we had lots of books in our home and lots of children's books. And I loved to escape to the top of the faraway tree or get into the stories of the secret five or the secret seven, whatever. And they were my escape. I could switch off and get into the story, if you like. Leaving school, I, I had a job in the Hydroelectric Commission office at Bronte Park. And that's where I met my husband, Peter. He's a terrific man. Everybody loved him, but somehow he besotted with me. And so eventually we got married. And we've been married 60 years this coming August. <laughs> Thank you. We had three children. And they were all, because we were Catholics, we, we went to church regularly every Sunday and um, the children were taught to pray and they knew that they were loved very much because I missed out on love, so I was making sure that they knew that they were loved. And today they're all, they're all professional people so, and well-adjusted people, so that was really, really good. But I still had all this the emotions buried because I really didn't know what I felt. If I was, if I was angry with, with you, I wouldn't say anything to you, I wouldn't do anything to you, but I would punish myself for being angry and I'd have migraine headaches or psychosomatic rashes or whatever because, you know, good girls don't get angry. So I, I had all these buried feelings and I didn't know what I felt really. And this day, I can remember listening to the, I always had the ABC radio on while I was doing the chores in the morning. And this woman on the radio was saying, if you invite Jesus into your heart and are truly sorry, you can have peace in your life. I can remember screaming at that radio Jesus, come into my life. I want some of this peace. I'm really sorry for my sins. But of course, nothing happened. Some weeks later, I used to do a lot of oil painting. And I was painting and this, the thoughts came into my head, go and see a priest. What do I want to see a priest for? Go and see a priest. It was just so insistent that I felt that I had to do something. So I, I rang around Launceston and this priest answered the phone and he said, I asked him if it would it be okay if I went to see him? And he said, yes, but can you come Monday? I've got to go to Hobart to do 
a marriage encounter weekend and I've got to do a few of the talks. And I said, yes, Father, that's fine. I didn't want to see him. <laughs> and then he said, no, you come now. And so I went in the car and, and when I got there, he said, I, had to f I felt that I had to see you. So we went into a little room and uh, we were talking for a while as he drew me out. And in the Catholic Church, they have a sacrament called reconciliation. So I confessed my sins in this sacrament. And in that moment, it's really hard to describe, but it was like I was enveloped in this cocoon of bright light love, where Jesus went into my heart as I went into his. And it was real. He really loved me because all my life I'd been afraid of this God. I was never going to get to heaven because I was so bad. Nobody wanted me. And I knew then he really loved me just as I was. Didn't have to make any changes. He loved me. And I was just so full of joy and wanted to praise God. I couldn't wait to get to church. And everybody's saying to me, what happened? You look so different. Because before, I wouldn't allow anybody near me because I had this invisible wall around me that nobody could penetrate. Because if I let you close to me, you were either going to reject me or do something to me. Now, there were no walls and I'm smiling at everybody <laughs> and just wanting to hug people. And, you know, they just couldn't work it out what happened. So I was able to tell them. But fortunately, I was in a, a parish where the priest knew what had happened to me. And there was a, at that time a charismatic prayer group in that parish so they could handle what was happening to me. And so that, that was really, really good. But sometime later, the subject of forgiveness came up. I couldn't forgive all the people that had abused me or done all these horrible things to me as a child. And, and so I just said to Jesus, I know I've got to forgive, but I can't do it. It's too big. And then as I was talking to him about this, I looked up. I see things like a, watching a TV video. I looked up and Jesus was on the cross. His whole body was bruised and bloodied and in a terrible state. There was a, I could see this thorn out of this face that you couldn't hardly recognise, but his face was going like this, like he was being slapped from slide to side, but his eyes were looking straight at me. And the words went through my mind, I forgave you of all your sins, you go and forgive. So I, with his help and Holy Spirit's help, I asked Holy Spirit to help me to know everybody that I needed to forgive. And so each one I was able to forgive and let it go. But when it came to my mother and father, that was a different issue because I thought, how can I forgive my father? And I, again, I would talk to Jesus about this. And, um, but every morning I would say to, to the Lord in my prayer in the morning, I'd say, 
Jesus, I choose to forgive my father. Help me to forgive my father. And I did this every morning. I'd say that and I'd say, come into my heart as you go into his heart. And then later, some weeks later, I was at Port Sorrel and Dad was sitting on the lounge room chair and he was reading the newspaper and I just said, Dad, I love you. I don't know who got the biggest shock, me or him, because I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> but I knew in that moment I'd truly forgiven my, heart, my father. And so a, few, a couple of weeks later, I had to take him to the doctor. And as a result of that, I, um, he was told that he had, uh, after further tests, esophagus cancer. And they only gave him seven months to live. And I was quite upset about this because I'm saying to Jesus, well, I'm just getting to know my father and you're going to take him from me. And it wasn't fair and all of this sort of stuff. And um, so I had to, he, my father died. And I was just so upset with, with, uh, with God taking my father. And I was just crying coming along home in the car. And I crawled into this church and I'm just sitting down the back, sobbing my heart out to Jesus, saying, why, 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 why now? And I looked up and above the altar, I saw my father. He looked so young and so handsome and Jesus. They both sort of had their arm around each other's shoulders. And they were both looking at me and smiling. And the words went through my mind, now you can talk to your father anytime. And I've just got up in the, oh, the church, I'm just dancing around. I was so happy that my father was okay. But then the same with my mother. I remember her ringing me up. She, she played a um, bowls, a great pin of bowls, and she rang up to tell me that she'd won another trophy. And I had this heat come through me. I thought, I've really forgiven you. And so I was able to look after my mother tenderly till the day that she died. And that was, it's been all God's grace. And I had this wonderful intimate relationship with Jesus. But now we had to do something about my emotions because I had to learn to get in touch with each one of them. And that was a difficult time for me. Um, so I would always, I was very fortunate to be able to do this with a lot of help in a program that I was part of at that particular time. But as I, I dealt with all of this stuff, I became freer and freer. Now I know that um, I've been healed of a heaps of stuff but, and there were times when I would just hang on to my faith with fingernails, if you like, because it was, there were just so many really dark nights in my, in my dealing with all my stuff, if you like. As Holy Spirit put me in touch with it, I had to deal with it. And there were some pretty tough stuff because I blocked out so much stuff. In fact, there's still stuff I don't remember, but 
it, there were big stuff that I did remember. So we had to be, this had to be dealt with positively. And so God put around me incredible Holy Spirit-filled people who helped me and guided me in the right direction. So I was very, very blessed with that. But I'd always ask him to do that anyway. So Holy Spirit helped me, you know, helped me to take the next step. So, and I've learnt that I'm very strong, very resilient, have heaps of faith, but the biggest thing is I'm not alone. I'm still on this journey, if you like, to the Father, to the Father with Jesus in the Spirit. I'm not alone and it's in him that I live and move and have my being. And through him, I can do everything. Him strengthens me. Thank you. Thank you. Can we just pray for you? We would love to pray for you. Um, um, as you can tell, um, you know, Irene's story gets carried around the state with by her um, ministering to people. Um, into forgiveness, and she she's done a lot of work with people. I did have some Christians do have need deliverance ministry sometimes, and I did have some deliverance ministry, and I did have inner healing ministry that helped along the way. But we just want to pray for you because this is obviously something God does through you, and it's a gift to us and a gift to our state. Father God, we just thank you um, that Irene is with us, that she is here in your presence and alive and well. God, we thank you for your restoration and your healing. We thank you for the journey that she's been on for the people that you've put in her life. Um, and we thank you now that she's in our lives, Lord God, and we just pray that you strengthen her and continue to give her opportunities to minister in your name and to point people to Jesus. Amen. Peace be with you. Thank you. Everyone okay? <laughs> I now got to find my pages. So much for my reading glasses. Not helping me now, are they? Anyway. Um, so if you have been here the last few weeks, you will notice that we've been doing a three-week series on God's heart. God's heart for some of the difficult things and God's heart for some of the things that we don't talk about heaps. Um, so we thank Irene. She's had a long journey and a long time. <laughs> That's... It's not because of your maturity, Irene. It's because God has been doing these things in you for a long time. Um, but if you don't know me, my name's Kate and I'm part of the team here. In the last two weeks, we've been talking about God's heart for the grieving and God's heart for the overwhelmed. And we sort of touched a little bit on mental illness last week. And this week, I just wanted to talk about God's heart for the brokenhearted um, and how, as a group of people, we can respond when really difficult things happen because we want to do it well. Um, and we want to represent his heart well. Um, so I just wanted to share this with you. It came up last week. Mary, Mary just felt in the spirit to read this in our prayer meeting, and it was Isaiah 61. So before Jesus was born, this was written about Jesus, and he quoted it about himself when he was really here. Um, and it's all about his intentions, what he came to do, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. 
And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how we have different domains of who we are. The human beings are body and soul and spirit. So our soul is our emotion, will, mind. Um, Our body is our physical space that we take up and our spirit is that part of us that God created to connect with him in relationship. And the Bible uses the word soul, you'll see it a lot in the Psalms, but more often it uses the word heart. And the word the Bible uses for heart is a combination of soul and spirit. So when the Bible says heart, it actually means everything to do with your inner world, all of it the entirety of what's inside there. So when the Bible says brokenhearted, we're talking about wounds to the inner, inner world. Um, and some of those really difficult life experiences, traumatic experiences, uh, do wound the inner, inner world. Um, they do damage. Um, so when we're talking about traumatic experiences, we're looking at things that are a threat to your safety. Um, they often are very frightening, but also have a helplessness factor to them that you feel like you can't get out of that situation or control it. Um, And it often overwhelms your ability to cope with it at that moment. So that's why some people find some things more traumatic than other people, is because there's an element of the resources that you have to cope with it at that time. So when we're talking about these things, um, there are situations like being a victim to injuries. Um, or violence um, or sexual abuse like Irene testified to or even witnessing somebody else being injured or harmed in any way, including the research tells us now overhearing it. Uh, So you don't actually have to see some of these traumatic things. Sometimes you can just hear it and your brain will fill in the little movie for you so you have actually experienced it in a way. Um, And the third thing that can be really traumatic for people is um, an experience of neglect from caregivers in early life because we are born completely helpless and without our caregivers, we are actually uh, have a lack of safety. We don't have what we need to survive, so we feel unsafe. So they're the things that we're talking about. so when Tim and I get pregnant, got pregnant, we weren't the most uh, uh, maternal, would you say? Like, we weren't like people who stole other people's babies and like, uh, you know, we weren't clucky. We're just like, well, you know, we better get on, on with it, time's ticking. <laughs> it's only so many carefree years that you can live in your 20s before you decide that you better make a family. And people would say, oh, do you, I, do you want a boy or a girl? And I'm like, actually, I want a baby giraffe. <laughs> and they were like, what? It's like, well, baby giraffes, like they're born and they stand up and they just fend for themselves. It's like, that would be really nice. Uh, because humanity has the longest period of dependence of any living thing. Okay, the time that we need to be nurtured and taught far exceeds anything else on the planet. And that's because we've got a lot to learn. We just don't need to learn how to find food. You know, don't eat dead flies off the floor. That's a good life lesson when you're under five. Yes. We also need to learn language. An entire language is picked up. Uh, We also need to learn all of those little social rules, you know, like open your birthday card before the present, saying please and thank you, et cetera, et cetera. Don't take the biggest piece of cake. Like there's a lot to learn. Um, And we are hardwired to learn those things through interaction. 
So face-to-face, give and take. So I do something and my caregiver responds and I learn things. And when we're talking about that learning, in the first five years of life, one million neural connections in your brain are happening every second. Every second. So your brain, by the time you're five, weighs 90% of what it's going to. (laughs) That's kind of a bit sad for those of us who've grown up. There's not much more we can do with this. No. (laughs) Which is not true. I'm going to tell you that in a minute. Um, But all of that growth is language, your social world, and your sense of identity is built through that face-to-face. And what people need to flourish in that inner world, yes, our parents, you know, teach us not to eat dead flies and uh, don't run on the road and don't touch the stove and all those things that keep us safe. But the underpinning kind of things that we're taught in that time is acceptance, love and belonging, the three things that people need. So acceptance is, I am me. You learn your own name. When people say your name, you learn that they're talking to you. So I'm me, I'm seen. And they did this experiment, not for a long time, because it's not a, not a helpful experiment, called the blank face experiment. And it goes for less than two minutes, by the way. Um, but what they do is take an ordinary mother and a child, maybe like under a year, about 12 months of age, um, put the baby in a high chair and then ask the mother to turn around. And when she turns back around, they ask her to keep a blank face, neutral, no expression. So still face to face, but neutral. Um, And then they film what the baby does in two minutes. It's amazing. It does all the cute stuff. Like, (laughs) blows a raspberry. Then it starts to point at things, you know, because usually that gets mum's attention. I want that. You know, it might ga-ga-ga, make some noises. And then eventually, you know what it's going to do. It's going to cry. And then eventually it will scream, arch its back, um, all in the space of under two minutes because we are hardwired for people to notice us and to say we're seen. The second thing that we need is love. Am I safe? I'm safe. I'm safe because someone who loves me puts my needs above their own. So when I express something, I need food, somebody will give me food. When I make a noise because I'm hot, somebody will take my cardigan off. And when, like, I really, really need custard and not broccoli, somebody will do what I need them to do. And the third thing that we need is belonging. Not just that I'm seen and I'm safe, but actually I'm okay. Um, And I and other people are safe. I'm okay with them and they're okay with me. And I've got something unique to offer the world. This is my name. This is why I'm different to you. But this is why I belong with you. So human beings are born into community to have all of these relationships. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And those of you who have to listen every time my kid loses a tooth will know that to be true, right? They go around and they show all of you the lost tooth. It's because you are creating that belonging with me for them. And experiencing really difficult traumatic things in childhood disrupts that foundation. So a lack of safety or not having a trustworthy attachment with an adult caregiver means that in that period of intense brain growth, the brain is actually growing along patterns that's not acceptance, love and belonging, but more along the lines of uh, rejection, shame and fear. 
And this is a beautiful thing about our brain. I'm in love with the human brain. It's very exciting. And what I love about the human brain is the more people study it and the more science they do on it, the more they realise that what the Bible says about the brain is kind of true. So our brains are hardwired for growth, but they're also hardwired for survival. So we have to have our basic needs met in the short term before we can think about the other stuff and grow into all of those things. It's called our survival response. There are lots of other names for it. Um, but it's triggered deep in the brain by the emotion of fear. So if we're unsafe and something's going wrong, our brain will actually trigger this biological response in our body. And you'll notice it because your heart rate will go up and you're breathing and all of the um, blood flows to your large muscle groups. So you've got like this superhuman strength. Um, your eyes will go really wide so you can see really well. Your hearing zones in and your body shuts down your food digestion and the front part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is very important for decision making. Don't need it. Don't think about it. So if you're going to meet a bear in the woods, you're not going to stop and make a pros and cons list about what you're going to do. Your brain, in a split second, says, you don't need to do that. You just need to get out of this situation. Uh, so it will do three things. It's called fight, flight, freeze. So you'll either decide that you can take on this threat um, and your fists will ball up, your shoulders will come up. You get this rush of adrenaline. I'm going to fight this. You'll decide your best chance of survival is to run away really fast. That's my personal preference. Um, or you will decide that your best chance of survival is to not move. Freeze, blend in and see if it goes away. Now, all of those things are very helpful when we're meeting a bear in the woods. But they are short-term survival tactics. But if those short-term survival tactics have to get used day in, day out, um, it establishes neural pathways in the brain that are used and reinforced over and over again during that pattern when your brain grows. So your brain grows on a foundation of not being safe. And it replicates and it creates this understanding in you that the world isn't a safe place. Now, what I love about this is it's God-given. What a merciful God, that he would give us a survival mechanism to get us out of danger fast. He is a good God. And sometimes we need it, because there's plenty of times when we meet an actual bear, or more likely a shark in Australia, isn't it? Or a tiger snake. Does the same thing in me. <sighs> Actually, when I see a tiger snake, I can't quite decide if I want to do fight, flight and freeze, whether I want to chop its head off with a spade or run away or just stand very still and it will think you're a stick. <laughs> But this God-given response is there to help us. But there's an extra layer of his mercy. And that is um, when something is so difficult, traumatic or frightening that we feel like we can't cope, our brain shuts it down. And I tell the kids that I work with, say, that's helpful because you've got to get up and eat your wheat bix and get to school. And if you were in this survival mode, it would be really hard to get up and eat your wheat bix and get to school. 
So God gives us this mechanism in our early life to be able to shut those things down so that we can carry on. He is a good God, but it's supposed to be a short-term solution. And if we live long-term, um, there are some undoing that needs to be done. So it can create this foundation of rejection, shame and fear. And rejection says, those closest to me didn't notice me, so I mustn't be worth it. And shame says, not guilt, guilt is something's not right, shame is I'm not right. And shame says, something's really wrong here, but I can't tell anyone about it because it's probably my fault. Um, and because of the nature of childhood, um, we are the centre of our own universe. So being able to see things from other people's point of view and the big picture comes much later in our life. So when we're little, the world does actually revolve around us. That's how we're made, because we're supposed to be focusing in on the people in our immediate circle to learn. So if something goes horribly wrong, um, what children will do is assume, because they're the centre of the universe, that they caused it. I actually have this little picture book that I read called Was It the Chocolate Pudding? And the story is about these two little boys who get up before breakfast and decide to make themselves chocolate pudding for breakfast and it just goes everywhere. Um, but shortly after, mum and dad have an argument um, and they decide to separate. And the story is the boys thinking that they were so naughty about the chocolate pudding that that's what caused the family separation. And sometimes that's what we do and then the foundation is shame, I'm wrong, and it's my fault. And then fear says, I'm not safe. People aren't safe, the world isn't safe. And sometimes when we have a foundation of fear that's come from living a long life of being unsafe, we have this thing called hyperarousal, which means that we are always watching, like we're always on high alert because something could happen at any moment. So, um, it's actually very exhausting. It takes a lot of energy to always be ready for action. So um, the muscles can be quite tense. Lack of sleep. Distracted by any tiny little noise, scanning the room constantly like this. And it actually makes it really difficult to connect with people because this part of your brain that processes language and words and decisions is gone. Right? So there can be a whole conversation happening in front of you and somebody cannot actually be processing or hearing the words because they're scanning um, in case there's danger. Now, for a long time, the world called these things maladaptions. That means like an adjustment that you make that's not helpful for you. But they've changed it now to adaptions. So these things that God's given you and the way that he's made kids to cope with things are actually adaptions because it's survival. They, they survived, you survived. If you've got a survival story, it's got you this far. And we're so glad it did. And we thank God that you're here. Um, and the sheer courage that it takes to survive is amazing. But it's a short-term solution. And if our brain doesn't register that we're out of danger and we're back in safety, it makes it really hard to grow as a person in love, acceptance and belonging. Um, we kind of get stuck. So what's Jesus going to do? 
This is the good news. Remember I said <laughs> how things are, what he's going to do, how things are going to be. That's a testimony. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, he said he's going to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty for the captives and open the prisons for those who are bound. And how is he going to do it? Well, I think he can do lots of things in lots of ways. He's a creative God. But there's two things I've noticed. Um, and the first thing is people can have incredible Holy Spirit God encounters in a moment with a picture, with a word, with a scripture, with a sense that they just need to connect with someone or hear a song or anything like that. God can just break in like that and have a defining moment that shifts the foundation in a moment. He's God and he can do that. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. In an instant, he can shift. But then there's the hard work part. And the hard work part means that that survival courage has to get turned into a focus on a determination to live healed every day. So a choice to lean on him and let him do what he needs to do. And sometimes it's to choose daily and hourly to forgive or to trust him. So he can do both of those things, often a combination of them. And this is the good news. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. So the mind can be renewed, not just in how you think, but it takes up biological space. It's incredible. The things you think about start to be the pathways that you go to. It becomes your default. So when God says he can transform you by the renewing of your mind, that process that takes place actually changes your physical brain. Incredible. Um, and science has just caught up with that, and they call it neuroplasticity, which means your neurons can be changed and adapted and change shape. Um, and so when we see God's heart for the brokenhearted healing, we see it in Jesus. And sometimes if you haven't had a safe person, uh, it's hard to see God as a safe person because your foundation says that's not the case. And a lot of people are okay with Jesus. Right? He's a good friend, he's a good guy. You read the stories about him, he's a safe guy. But when they start to think about God the Father, it's a bit harder. They see him as a bit harsher. Um, a bit more condemning, which is why it's really important when we look at Jesus, we understand that he is the exact representation of God. He's the revelation of God. So when you watch how Jesus reacts to people, this is how God sees you. So I want to talk about this story um, from John chapter 4. And it's where Jesus meets the woman of Samaria. Um, and the town that she lived in was often bypassed. So she was a Samarian and Jesus was a Jew. There was kind of a bit of racism going on. And the Jews would often take the long way around instead of taking the shortcut through the town so they didn't have to associate with people they didn't like. Um, but he took the shortcut intentionally. And it says this, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, asks a drink from me? Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. He's got her attention. But Jesus gives acceptance. He was intentional. He initiated with the person who was supposed to be not seen and not heard. She was seen. She was noticed. She was valued. And the reason that she was alone drawing water in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, was that she wasn't just a Samaritan and a woman, but she was also rejected by other Samaritan women because of her life circumstance. So she was out gathering water when nobody else did. Um, So she didn't have to deal with the social aspect of being rejected. And it's good to remember that Jesus gives us baseline acceptance because we're human and he made us. That foundation of acceptance doesn't change ever. And then, he go, and then she goes on, verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. I'm, I may not thirst and I won't have to come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband, in that you spoke truth truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. You can sense this tension, can't you? (laughs) So the acceptance that she just received from him even speaking to her, now she has to face the shame, because he's just asked her her direct question and she has to answer. And you hear this inner struggle that says, okay, well, now you know who I really am. That's going to change everything, isn't it? As soon as you find out what's really happened, that's the end of that relationship. Um, And what we learn from Jesus about this is he told the truth and moved on. Didn't stay in condemnation. Didn't want to flesh it out. Didn't need to go over and over and over and over. Okay, there it is. There's the truth of what happened. And then he moves on to the next bit. So we don't have to have secrets with Jesus. And there's aspects of really traumatic things in childhood. Like I said, that mercy part of how God's made us, that buries it deep so we can cope. But he knows it all. And he's kind of holding out this hand of an acceptance of love that says, are you willing to go there? Because he knows the truth, but sometimes we need to hear the truth. Sometimes we need to tell our story to get it out of that deep locked place. Um, Because while it's still there, there's still this shame-based foundation that's there. So we need to hear Jesus say, I know, I know it all, and I love you. Because he is more true than shame, because shame is always based on lies, isn't it? It's never really true. So Jesus is more true than the things that we tell ourselves about our worth and who we are. And that love, knowing that someone puts you ahead of themselves, that worthiness that comes from being loved by God, can can just undo it, can unlock it and bring some freedom. Because it's hard to grow in the life of God when your heart's in shutdown. So we can't selectively shut down our heart, which is interesting. If we're going to shut down some of our heart to cope, 
short term. We're also going to shut away our sense of humour, um, our hobbies, the things that we love to do and the passions that we have and our joy. That all of it goes in the little box. We can't just pick the bits that are messy. Uh, it affects all of who we are and our emotions. They all go down in there together. So there's a part of the unlocking of the love of God that's got to bring that truth out and the patterns of relationships that are in life because of those things so that that story is told and then Jesus can move on and do the next bit. And this is the next bit. So she's realised that he's something, someone special and it's a little bit freaky now because he's kind of important. And then she says this to him, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that Jerusalem's the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So her next question to him is, how do I get it right? <laughs> okay, Jews have to say we have to do this. We say we have to do this. Have I missed it? Am I right? Am I doing the right thing? Her fear of not fitting in that it was unachievable to come to the levels of others. And someone's going to figure you out. Someone's going to figure out that you're different, that you're, that you're faking it or something. And Jesus said to her, the hour has now come when everyone is included in God. There's not little special people and the rest of the strugglers. Everybody is included in God. You have belonging in his kingdom because he says so not because of how anybody else treats you or the words that have been spoken over you. And now when it comes to us as a church, we were talking about these things because we want to be equipped to help people. We want to do it well. Um, sometimes people see church as the answer. So if, some, if someone's really struggling and you know some of their story, oh, if I just get them to church, that'll fix them. It's like, we're not the answer. We can do our best to give acceptance, love and belonging, but we're pretty human. I know it doesn't seem like it when you see how amazing we, we all are here, but we are very human. So church is not the answer, Jesus is. So I who speak to you am he. So we're just saying here's Jesus. He is acceptance, love and belonging. Let's get out of the way. Um, and he is more than capable of dealing with the deep wounds of the spiritual domain or the emotional domain. Uh, we can trust him to do that well. But we're the ones with skin on. So our role is to mirror in the physical domain what God is already doing in the spiritual domain. So he's healing from the inside out, which is the only way to heal, really. But we're supporting and reinforcing that by healing from the outside in. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means this, that people who have a trauma background can have a fear response to very ordinary things, seemingly ordinary things. No matter what our good intentions are, 
there can be a trigger or a sense that they're not safe. And when that happens, that fear response happens, they're not listening to words. Words can't be processed. So we have to communicate with our tone and our body language and our face. Okay? This is just good information for us to know. If we sense that someone's getting really worked up and upset, that your tone of voice, keeping it calm and even, is really helpful. Your face, keeping the warmth in your eyes, can be really helpful. Listening to the story they're telling and not responding with too many words, because it's a waste of time. <laughs> so carry the love and the warmth and the acceptance in your person. And there's going to be times when people react on autopilot, because that's the survival mechanism. And it's going to seem to people who live healed or who don't have a trauma background that it's an overreaction to things. So it might be a fight response, so there might be aggression, or it might be a flight response, complete withdrawal, shut you out, stop replying to your text, etc., etc. And those of us who live healed or who don't have to deal with those things have to take the responsibility to not be offended because we're able to project acceptance, love and belonging as our foundation while people are still healing. And it's not in our time, it's in his time. I talked about that last week. We don't get to decide where the biggest wounds are and what people need to do. Jesus decides and we're being friends with people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they've found that a foundation of rejection, shame and fear can be undone. No surprises to God, because he is hope. But it can be undone, but it takes 100,000 interactions of acceptance, love and belonging to rebuild over the top of that foundation. It can be done. But that's a community effort, isn't it? So just be aware that any time you're interacting with someone, you can be one of the 100,000 that starts to rebuild that foundation. And it's why at living um, here at Redemption Hills Church, just <laughs> that was 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> sorry, Living Hope Church, where Russ and Mary are today. I love you. Um, why here at this church, we will always value children. Always. Because Jesus did. He said so in his words, in his words. Um, that they are valuable, they are seen, they are safe, and they are okay. And that's why we want to know their names, we want to acknowledge them. And I love that you all have to look at, for the lost tooth. And I love that some of you are chucking around balloons while we're packing up. I appreciate that from, from my point of view as a parent. But all children who walk in our doors, we are building that foundation with them. And if you're someone who's in recovery, from early trauma, some of your 100,000 interactions are going to be with Jesus himself. As many as you want. In his presence, he's going to be communicating with you acceptance, love and belonging over and over and over again. And your brain will have no choice but to follow. Nobody is ever truly stuck with Jesus. Because there's always hope. So when we are being friends with people, especially if they have a trauma background, they might be needing that supernatural God encounter moment that shifts the foundation. 
maybe they're up to the hard work part. Maybe they're doing both of those sims simultaneously. But we just got to trust that the Holy Spirit's doing that and we're just in the mix. But I just want to finish with this. After he said all those things about what he was going to do about healing the brokenhearted and bringing liberty, freedom from the captives, verse 2 says this. There's more why he came. To proclaim ex the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and that he may be glorified. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. See, so in Jesus, a foundation of brokenheartedness can be rebuilt and repaired. And not just that. Then he goes on in verse 7. And instead of your shame, you shall have double honour. Instead of confusion, you shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in the land they shall possess double, and everlasting joy shall be theirs. A relationship with Jesus shifts things forevermore. And we're a church that believes in healing and transformation in Jesus. We always have hope for redemption. <laughs> redemption heals, it's in our name. No matter how long it takes. Um, so I know that's, that's a lot to sit with. And I appreciate you trusting me with that. Um, it's probably something we don't talk about enough in church because it's a really defining moment in people's lives. Um, and we want to be on the journey with what God's doing with people and with healing. Um, but we are just going to sit with God. Um, the guys are going to come and lead us in more worship. And there's that opportunity then, isn't there, for that encounter with God. If you're needing it for yourself, you might be um, in prayer for a friend or a family member that you know is journeying through this and you just need to hear God. For, for how to, to help them and the next step to take. Um, or you might be up to the hard work part where your prayer is just going to be, help me forgive, help me to heal, whatever it is that you're praying for in that moment. But we are going to open up to ministry time um, if you have people around you who need it. We talk about buried emotions as, you know, as I've said to you, that I had lots of those. One thing, when my auntie had told me about this, I was always asking Holy Spirit, what happened to the baby? And, of course, it took oh, years before I got that answer. And then one time I was in a Holy Spirit in Melbourne at a conference. It was, the anointing was so incredible on the Friday night when I was just worshipping the Lord and all of a sudden it went through my mind the baby was abused. From the top of my head to the soles of my feet were one great big pain. There wasn't a part of me that wasn't in pain and I didn't even know how I was going to get home. But the Lord sent somebody that asked me, do you need a trip to the airport? And I said, yes. And so I had a seat in the back seat of his car. And then when I got home, I couldn't talk. And when I got home, 
my husband said to me, oh, Mark's picking me up at um, six o'clock in the morning, we're going fishing for the day. And I thought, oh Lord, thank you, I've got the day to myself. I was in this cocoon of absolute silence where all I could say was Jesus hold me. It was like a mantra, Jesus hold me, Jesus hold me. I couldn't do anything but sit in this cocoon of silence. The next morning I walked, I lived beside a Carmelite monastery. I walked around to the monastery and I'm sitting in the, the chapel and I'm, I'm just saying the same things, Jesus hold me. And then in my mind's eye, this video came up. Jesus came, he picked up my hand and he led me back to the baby. He picked, put my hand down, he picked up the baby and he's holding the baby and the expression on his face was incredible love for this baby. And he's blowing, blowing life into this baby, it looked like. Then he put my hand, put the baby down, picked up my hand and led me back to where I was. It was all gone. I was just in just praise and gratitude. Gratitude's a big part of my life now, as you can imagine. But there's always hope if you keep asking the Holy Spirit to help you uncover those parts that you need to be uncovered. Thank you. And we're not here today to push. Healing is God's domain, not ours. He's the source of healing. Um, but we're just going to wait on Him with open hearts. Um, and um, for prayer for our city, that there would be deep healing in the lives of people who need it, um, and especially in the lives of our kids of this city, because right now is our best chance to help them heal. <laughs> 